Hello, and welcome to The Art of Listening, a podcast about classical music, conducting, composition, the business of music, and how to listen to it all. My name is Jeff Bradbury. Welcome to episode two. With me, as always, is Gabriel Gordon. Gabe, how are you today? Welcome to the show. I'm doing great. Happy holidays to everybody. Happy holidays indeed. I hope everybody out there enjoyed our first episode about three of our favorite symphonies. We had a lot of great reviews on that, Gabe. You know, one of the questions I wanted to bring up before we got into today's topic is that whole concept of the symphony and what makes it great. Now that we are here at the holidays, are there any symphonies that come to mind as you must listen to this? The other day I was listening to, you know, the Nutcracker, something that happens frequently around this time of year. But are there symphonies that are kind of more holiday themed that you can think of? Well, you know, not necessarily holiday theme, but maybe uh, circling around the, the time of year. You mentioned Tchaikovsky for the Nutcracker. So uh, one of his least played symphonies, which is one of my, my favorites, is his first symphony, uh, which is Winter Dreams. And it's, it's a symphony that deserves much more hearing than it has. We will certainly be looking at that on future episodes. And we want to say thank you to you guys for checking this out, hitting that subscribe button. This is called The Art of Listening. We are here for you guys, and we are interested in hearing what you guys think about this. Don't forget to hit that subscribe button and leave a review on Apple Podcasts and wherever you guys listen to your podcast today. Gabe, we're going to take a step backwards in our journey through the symphony, and we're going to talk a little bit about storytelling. What can you tell us a little bit about storytelling and the music that we're going to be listening to today? Well, so it's when you're writing a whole symphony, it's it's something that uh, is difficult because you're trying to grab the audience's attention and really hold it for, you know, 45 minutes to an hour in some cases. And when you're you go to a movie, you don't think about. Uh, you know, the fact that you're in there for two, two and a half hours, sometimes even three hours, because you're absorbed in this story. So what composers had to do in order to elongate uh, their pieces was to be able to tell a story in the form of pure music. And that's something that evolved over time. I mean, last week when we started talking about Mozart, Beethoven and Dvorak, we had mentioned that, you know, Mozart was writing music for music's sake. By the time Beethoven five and even the sixth symphony came around, it started to become more programmatic. And of course, Dvorak with the new world was clearly writing with themes and, 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 and sounds that he heard in his head. This whole idea came about around when in music history? Uh, it was like right after the Baroque period um, in the 1740s, 1750s. What happened was um, like after Handel, Handel uh, wrote the Messiah. It's a religious work. And the Baroque composers, when they wanted to write really long form pieces, uh, were limited to either an opera, uh, which was only performed uh, for the royalty, it wasn't, you know, really publicly performed, and oratorios, which were stories told in music, but they they were religious stories told in music, so they were written in churches and performed in churches. And public events were really kind of rare, but Handel got lucky in that he kind of lived on the cusp of when people started thinking about having these large scale performances. And the Messiah was just so immediately incredibly popular that 
the royalty said, okay, you know, we're going to open this up to the public and, and have this in, you know, a larger space. And so Handel started actually touring uh, with, with Messiah. And then as times kept on going, people realized, you know, we could actually not just have the royalty paying for all of this, we could charge tickets and have these large scale performances. And so that's kind of how the whole thing started to develop. And when you have, you know, a large audience of, uh, you know, 500, 1000 or even 2000 people, um, you got to give them a whole show. It's not gonna, you know, be, uh, you know, just 20 minutes and then and then people go away. So people started to think, composers started to think about how they were going to make their pieces longer and say what they wanted to say without having to actually tell a physical story from the Bible or through an opera. So really what we're talking about here is the form of music, how things went from just being heard by specific people to being heard by everybody one of the words that we we say a lot we, we even mentioned it in our last episode is this whole concept of sonata form now sonata doesn't necessarily mean automobile and sonata doesn't necessarily mean the thing that you play if you're a, a piano player perhaps without orchestra but sonata does come up an awful lot in music can you describe what for us right now what are we talking about when we use the word sonata well, so there are lots of forms in music, and it's really useful to be able to write within a framework. It, it keeps you disciplined, really, in a large sense. And sonata form in, in particular is, overall, it's a, a ternary form, uh, three parts with subsections and additions that can actually extend into seven parts if you want to. So generally in a symphony, and sonata form was usually called as well first movement form because it became the first movement of virtually every symphony after people started catching on to it. Um, and so in the symphony, generally, you would have an introduction. It was slow. It was a way to establish the key and, well, uh, you know, kind of like an opera, just a way to, you know, wake people up. Hey, we're starting the concert. Um, and uh, so you have this introduction and then you would have a first theme and that would lead to a second theme, which would go into what we call the dominant key. Uh, and from that point on, you would have the development section. And after the development section, where everything gets really creative, you then would have the recapitulation, which is basically the first theme and the second theme again. And that would lead to a coda. Now, this really did have a lot of connections to opera, right? From my, my remembrance of music theory, the first theme was more masculine, the second theme was more feminine, and then the development was kind of like them dancing and singing around, and then finally you you do have that, that, that recapitulation where suddenly the story gets better. I mean, the one that I'm sure you're familiar with is Ina Klein and Nock music, where you've got one theme of bum, bum, ba, 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 da, bum, and then that second theme comes in. They do have a little bit of harmony with each other. Yeah, so the the whole concept really came from uh, Haydn, and it came from his experience writing com comedic opera. So comedic opera was the action film of the day, 
that's what the huge crowds the the you know if if um today if you want to make a a billion dollars then you make a movie about superheroes and in Haydn's day if you wanted to make a lot of money then you made an opera that was uh, a a funny opera that people like to go to and the form of the opera was always the same and that was one of the reasons why it was so successful and you generally have a a hero uh, who is the you know the protagonist and he shows up and talks about himself and introduces the love interest after that and the two of them meet and after the two of them meet then generally hilarity ensues where there are lots of uh, there's lots of uh misunderstanding and uh you know people passing in the night and uh then the two of them eventually figure things out and they get back together and after that there is a moral to the story so the first theme is the protagonist and the second theme is the love interest and the development section is where hilarity ensues and then the recapitulation is where the two of them get back together and the coda is in fact the where where the moral of the story comes in so this form was so popular that haydn thought to himself i wonder what would happen if i made this into uh the form for pure music and uh he actually well i guess the term is it went viral at that point and and if we're looking at this from the musicologist and music music theory background what can you tell us a little bit about the key relationships and the chords and and how each of these themes were created well and you know there's there's uh you know a, a little bit of following the the whole thing with with what the opera the whole story of what the opera was saying so the first theme is generally considered to be masculine um and the second theme is generally considered to be feminine and moves in general to uh the dominant key where at that point uh the development section usually starts in the development key and it cycles through a whole bunch of other keys uh before it comes back to the dominant so that you can then move from the dominant back to the tonic that's that's essentially the ternary form that we're talking about you have this big move from the tonic to the dominant back to the tonic that's really the the basis for the whole form and uh once you get back to the tonic in the recapitulation for the second theme you stay in in the tonic and that was actually kind of one of the strokes of genius that Haydn made that others had not made before where you just you know stay there and then you know the coda you just finish things off now this whole concept of sonata form and 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 you know writing stories this wasn't just a symphony thing this was in string quartets this was in trios this 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 form is starting to be used in other places other than just opera and the symphony proper yeah, as a matter of fact, it was the other way around. Haydn uh, codified 
the the sonata form that he had been working on and lots of composers by the way had been trying different things they knew that things needed to be extended and they were trying different forms and you know eventually actually people started extending the minuet uh Mm -hmm. form and you know making mozart actually uh did one one minuet in his divertimento in E flat, where I think he had uh, like four or five trios in the middle in the middle of it, and you just kept on going back. Um, but so you know, Haydn Haydn though codified that form in his Opus thirty three string quartets, and then brought it to the symphony. It was the other way around, actually. Let's talk a little bit about what happened next, because the symphony form, the sonata form, allegro form, sonata allegro, as we, as we also hear it, um, started to grow a little bit. We uh, had an introduction. We had some other parts to it. We added a fourth movement um, or middle movement somewhere in there. Talk to us a little bit about how everything matured a little bit. Well, so, you know, c- composers are always trying to one up each other. That's <laughs> number one. And also really nobody had said okay this is the form this is what it's called the first time sonata allegro form was coined was by a student of beethoven you know who looked back and said well you know this is kind of what we were doing um and uh the structure of the symphony which really comes from the baroque dances and you know kind of taking the best of the baroque dances and you know, putting them into a smaller form that was all, you know, longer parts of that form, uh, really started to come together with Haydn when, you know, you had this fast, slow, uh, fast, slow, uh, where, you know, Sonata Allegra form for the first movement, then Adagio Aria form, really, uh, which is also a ternary form and the minuet which eventually turned into the scherzo and got longer and longer and then the rondo which um you know again is a fast form and you know usually you know a galloping romp which was you know always a good ender so but as time went on composers really just used it as a framework they weren't really talking about you know this is what it had to be um, but they wanted to see how they can stretch, but they were always going from that framework. That's the thing. They started with that framework and said, okay, what can I do to make this even more interesting? How can I stretch the possibilities? What if, um, instead of going to the dominant for the second theme, I did, um, you know, what jazz players called a dominant sub and went to flat two instead, let's see what happens there. Um, Schubert actually in his uh, cello quintet in the scherzo, um, instead of going to the dominant in the trio, which is what you would normally do, he actually did exactly that. He went to flat, I think it was flat six there as a substitution, you know, just a brilliant substitution. Beethoven uh, in his third symphony uh, (laughs) sticks a new theme in the middle of the development section. I mean, it's just kind of this amazing, amazing moment uh, where you can see actually in the third symphony where he was saying, okay, I'm going to take you 
from the classical period here into the romantic period and i'm going to do stuff that you have never heard before and he actually wrote in in my mind by the way this is you know this is you know not completely accepted by everybody but from what i can see in the score uh he actually wrote deliberately classically with the rhythms and the proper way of uh writing and suddenly he would go straight from that into what's clearly romantic period writing um which was just completely different and this particular theme that is brand new you've never heard it before in the development section is clearly an, an extremely romantic theme that you know was carrying him from that place to place well as we mentioned last last episode they not only did this with keys and with themes they did this with instruments i mean last week we talked about the fact that beethoven stuck an oboe solo in the middle of things i mean there's exactly. so many different ways that they were that were bending the rules breaking the rules and you know we're going to talk about a, 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 one of my favorite pieces the symphony fantastique here but but let's stick with the, with the with uh you know between where beethoven and berlioz is yeah, you and I have a thing for Brahms too. It was one of our first pieces we really got a chance to discuss. Where is Brahms two for you in the history, and and why do we want to talk about it here when we're talking about storytelling, sonata movement, um, and all of that great stuff here? Well, Brahms, Brahms was a traditionalist, and he he came after after Beethoven and even uh, after Berlioz, and he saw that music was not only becoming more and more innovative, but was stretching tonality, was stretching instrumentation, it was just stretching a whole lot of things. And he's like, you know, you don't have to be different for the sake of being different. You can take what is there and you can be innovative without having to stretch everything so that it's unrecognizable, basically. And with his second symphony, he was experimenting with what to do with the first theme and and how to maybe even avoid you know knowing what the first theme was so the opening of the second symphony is a four note motive uh that's clearly not a theme and the you could you might be able to say that what the horns do in the third measure is a theme but it's not really complete and he kind of goes back and forth and really avoids having a theme until i believe it's letter a where i mean you're, you're probably about three or four minutes into the into the into the symphony you can't really call the beginning an introduction it's in the same tempo it's in the same vein it's using the same uh stuff uh, that the rest of the symphony uses. So it's not really an introduction, but undeniably that moment about maybe even four or five minutes into the symphony is a theme. So, okay, so which is the first theme? Is that little fragment at the beginning the first theme? Or is that thing that's clearly a theme, but really in the wrong place? Is that the first theme? And you kind of question it as you go along until you get to the recapitulation where he's clearly playing games with you because he brings both themes back at the same time at the moment of the recapitulation, basically saying, okay, 
the first theme wasn't the first wasn't the first theme. The second theme wasn't the first theme. They were both the first theme. <laughs> and so he's playing games with the form and, you know, kind of calling out all of those theorists saying, OK, you know, this has to be this way and this has to be the other way. But nothing really needs to be, you know, in a particular way. And Brahms was kind of making fun of all of those people that were saying, okay, we're going to, you know, make things in a particular way and then and then stretch it. You don't have to. You can be creative and still be a traditionalist. That's what he was saying. You know, Brahms only wrote four symphonies, but, you know, I say only. You know, the first one took him a long time to create. The next couple kind of came over the, like, four short years. Some might say that his symphonies are programmatic. Some might say they're not. And then I was even watching a YouTube video recently that was kind of juxtapositioning Brahms and Schumann, where they said, if you take all of Brahms's symphonies, that's the program of actually listening to all four of them together going, all right, the first one sounds like this because of this story. The second one is like this because of this story. And so looking at this on a micro macro level, you can really start to see how this music is storytelling. So let's just dive right in here. Symphony yeah. Fantastique. What can you tell us about it? Well, that is, it's really interesting because it's program music, kind of like Beethoven's Sixth Symphony, but at the same time, it's it's this brand new thing. I am always amazed whenever I remember I'm listening to Symphony Fantastique and realizing that the piece exists only 10 years after Beethoven's Ninth Symphony. And if you listen to Beethoven Ninth and Symphony Fantastique, there there couldn't be more of a revolution. In, and that's that's in, 10 years without CDs, recordings, internet, etc. Like you had to have been listening to these things live, studying scores for anybody to know this different music existed. Exactly. And Berlioz was as innovative as they got. And he he not only took the the long form of the symphony and extended it the symphony fantastique is actually five movements long and it's actually very similar to the to beethoven's sixth in the same way except that you know beethoven's uh storm movement is you know kind of separated and it's really really short so you could see the storm movement and the last movement kind of being one thing berlioz wrote five separate movements for this piece, and uh, the actually the the march to the scaffold uh, is very often just played by itself. It's it's such a self contained thing, um, and he he told a story and he told a love story uh, in that piece about uh, something incredibly personal, his own love story with a woman who uh denied him and uh he didn't like that and and uh was taking all kinds of drugs and alcohol as a result of it and uh wrote a piece about the dreams he was having about her and just took everything to the extreme however the first movement is in a longer form of sonata form he's still stuck to that form and that form continues to be an influence today on many different people 
It is interesting how we've gone from Haydn just creating music for music's sakes, putting it together with this whole comic opera thing, coming up yeah. with these themes, creating Sonata Allegra form, having Beethoven six come in with all of this stuff, expanding it, going into that. And then, of course, you can see what happens later. You've got your lists. You've got your Mahlers. You've got your... You know, you name those composers who just decided to say, all right, classical symphony is nice, but I'm going in this complete programmatic area. Um, and, and really, I think movie music, right? Like, well, I mean, Star it's, Wars yeah. would not be Star Wars without these different things. Oh, there's no question. And actually, I, I had a an, an argument with uh, my friend and conductor, Misha Santora, who I might have on the program here. Uh, it would be nice to have him. And uh, he said that the Mendelssohn Hebrides Overture is not a tone poem. And, uh, you know, to me, it's clearly a tone poem. And he said, no, there's one thing that differentiates the tone poem from everything else. It's not in a form. The tone poem doesn't have a form. It just goes from from thing to thing. And he said Mendelssohn is in Sonata Allegra form and is therefore not a tone poem. And I was determined and and did some research and I actually found an interaction with Rossini. And a lot of people point to Rossini's William Tell Overture as kind of the beginnings, the glimmerings of a tone poem. And this, his overture to William Tell, the, William Tell was an opera, but the overture to William Tell actually told the story in order within the form of the overture. And so a lot of people are saying, okay, that's kind of like a tone poem. And Rossini met Mendelssohn at the premiere of the Hebrides Overture, and he was he was kind of an older guy, and he walked up to Mendelssohn, and he said, uh, "You know, congratulations. Okay, you are the, the the first person to you know write a tone poem." And so I said that to Misha, and I said, "I'm sorry, Rossini was wrong." <laughs> it's it's, uh, it's okay. interesting to these things, you know. Even as a musician and as a conductor, I mean, I remember doing uh, *Midsummer Night's Dream*, and you know, form or no form, all of these themes are characters. All of these themes are meaning things, and you're trying to break it down for rehearsal techniques and studying techniques. You know, it's not easy to find, you know, meaning behind a first theme and a second theme in a Mozart, but it's easy to find it in the Hebrides or in a *Midsummer Night's Dream* or in a *Les Preludes* or you know, or even a Exactly. I can never say that word the right way. Yeah. No, but I mean, you're absolutely right that John Williams was directly influenced by Haydn by taking these themes and assigning them to a person. Yeah. You know, and in Wagner's case, it was assigning those themes to a person and also concepts. You could take a theme and assign it to the concept of greed and you know, that directly influenced the composers of today. I mean, sonata form influenced these people. It also influenced architecture. Mm-hmm. It also influenced painters. It also, I mean, it just influenced every single art form from then on and is still influencing people today. It's, it's one of the most remarkable forms that's ever existed. Gabe, I asked you last week if you have a favorite symphony. I'm going to ask you this week, do you have a favorite tone poem? Ah, that's a good one. Uh, man, I, you know, Les Preludes was one of the first one, uh, first ones that I ever performed. And uh, it just, 
blew my mind. I remember, I remember that. Um, but the Strauss tone poems, Till Eulenspiegel is one of my favorites. Uh, also Sprach Zarathustra. Um, and, you know, Strauss didn't really write symphonies. He basically only wrote tone poems. And if you look at Mahler, Mahler, Mahler didn't really want to write symphonies. He just wanted to write really, really long tone poems. <laughs> That's basically what he did. Um, but, uh, you know, and so that's the thing that these composers, you know, they took this form and, you know, some people say, okay, you have to follow this form. The form is a starting point. And from that point, the composers were able, because they were disciplined enough to start there and to say, okay, this is what, you know, you can go from and then go from there and expand everything that's that's one of the miracles of sonata forms that you can expand it and really make it pliable and do whatever you want with it we've been talking all about sonata form you know using music to tell stories we would like to actually hear your thoughts and suggestions gabe we're going to be posting this on our on your website gabrielgordon.net and of course you can find this podcast on all of your favorite stations from apple podcast google podcast all we're asking you guys to do is share this with your friends. Let us know that that you guys are out there. Leave a review. We'd love to hear from you guys. And if you have something to say on any of these topics, please feel free to reach out. We would love to have you guys as a guest on this show, and maybe we could discuss what your favorite tone poem is. Uh, Gabe, you've got some great social media accounts. Where can we follow you? Uh, Facebook uh, at The Art of Listening. Instagram at The Art of Listening. Uh, Twitter, also uh, Gabriel Gordon, The Art of Listening, uh, as well as I now have a TikTok account if you want to go on there and listen to some short videos. And speaking there. of which, you've been doing a lot of those short videos. I saw one recently on Brandenburg 3. Talk to us a little bit about some of the things that we can find over on your YouTube channel because you're doing some uh, some pretty interesting videos. Yeah, on my channel, I've got uh, Brandenburg 3, uh, where uh, I'm performing it um, with, you know, multiple me's and, and clones on there. And I'm also taking out each part so that if you're a teacher, you can actually take out that part and have your students practice along with it. I'm going to be doing uh, both the Bach A minor and the Vivaldi A minor uh, concertos uh, for those teachers, as well as uh, performing it uh, live there, and uh, more more of these uh, podcasts and and more talks about the music. I gotta say, it's a great channel for anybody who's out there as in a music educator position or as a student looking to learn. These videos are pretty cool. Like Gabe said, you know, you have the you have the the, the song. You have the song minus the soloist. You got a lot of great stuff. So check all that stuff out over there. Uh, you can do a YouTube search for Gabriel Gordon or the Art of Listening. And we want to say thank you guys for making the Art of Listening your home for classical music. This is the podcast about classical music, conducting composition and the business of music. And most importantly, how you guys can listen at all. On behalf of Gabriel Gordon, my name is Jeff Bradbury. Until next time, enjoy the music. <laughs>